The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. We all know that the judicial overhaul, although it was promoted by a small sector, reflected a wider disagreement regarding many issues. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 11th, 2024. The Israeli Supreme Court, in the middle of the war in Gaza, handed down a decision that amounts to a kind of death blow to Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's judicial reform project. Oh, you remember the judicial overhaul before October 7th? It was all that anybody was talking about in Israeli politics, and we covered it a lot here. You know, a five-part legislative plan to assert parliamentary control over the judiciary and reduce Israel's checks and balances into a more majoritarian system. Only one part of it got passed, and the Supreme Court has now struck it down in a decision that sharply divided the court on some questions and reflected significant unity on others. To discuss the 700-page ruling, we brought back our Israeli judicial overhaul team, Yuval Shaney of Hebrew University and Amichai Cohen of Ono Academic College. They have written more thoughtful stuff in English on Lawfare on this stuff than just about everyone else combined. And so we try to check in with them when there are major events. We talked about what the court did. We talked about what the court didn't do. We talked about doing it in the middle of a war and whether that was truly necessary. And we talked about where the judicial politics of Israel goes from here. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 11th, Yuval Shaney and Amichai Cohen on the Israeli Supreme Court's bombshell. So I want to start with the length of this Supreme Court opinion, which I think probably, if it has precedent in Israeli constitutional history, that would be news to me. I don't think it has precedent in American constitutional history to have a 700-page Supreme Court opinion. Why is this opinion so long? Well, I mean, the, the first reason, of course, is that this is the first time you have 15 justices sitting on the case. 
So I wouldn't say that the individual opinions are exceptionally long. What is exceptionally long is the fact that you have so many justices on the bench and all of them actually insisting on writing individual opinions and not just appending their opinions to, uh, to, other one, to, to existing ones. And I think that reflects on the sense that the judges felt when they were writing this, that this is an historic decision uh, and all wanted to have um, a piece of that history, you might say. And how did this come to be the first on banc sitting of the Israeli Supreme Court? I mean, you know, when we have big, important cases, that doesn't automatically change the rules of procedure here. Um, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court always sits on banc. But how did the the Israeli Supreme Court come to be sitting on banc here? So the president of the Supreme Court in Israel has the authority to uh, enlarge the panel. So a basic panel is three justices. And then the president of the Supreme Court has the authority to enlarge it. And traditionally in constitutional cases, important cases, it has been enlarged to somewhere between 7 and 11 justices. I think this time it was important for the justices also for appearance sake. So there was no uh, you know a manipulation of the of the uh, of the panel. So the the it was known in advance that if the tradition will be followed that the uh, most senior justices will sit in the case then there'll be a clear majority uh, for the liberal side. So, and the court wanted to put in uh, more justices that were uh, appointed to the court uh, in recent years, so that all parts of the court will be represented. And just to be clear, Amichai, I, I take it what you're saying is that the the longer a justice has served on the uh, on the Israeli Supreme Court, the more likely they are to be a, I'm just going to try to use neutral terminology for this, a sort of maximalist in the judicial uh, power department. And the more recent justices are much more apt to be cautious about judicial power and deferential to Knesset power. Is that is that a fair way to summarize it? Yes, but not because of the length of the of the service, because of the appointment system. In recent years, uh, because the uh, uh, gov- the right wing government had more uh, influence over the appointment of justices, less activist justices were appointed to the court. All right, and so Yuval, I I take it, and I have not read this opinion both because my Hebrew is not. Uh, remotely up to the task, and secondly, because it's 700 pages and it came out last week, and you know we've got some other things going on in the United States here. But um, I take it that there are essentially two fault lines among the justices here. One related to the power of judicial review over amendments to basic law in the first place, and the second over over the specific question of whether this law has a problem that requires invalidation. And so walk us through at a high level of altitude what these two 
disputes are. And of course, they produce different splits among among the justices. So at a high level, of we'll bore in on them over the course of the conversation. What are these 15 opinions over 700 pages arguing about? Okay, so the first fault line is really a, a very deep question of jurisprudence, of legal theory. And that is, uh, are there any limits on the power of uh, the constitution drafter or on the power of the political body that introduces a constitutional amendment in a system where the very existence of, of a constitution is questioned, has been questioned seriously and still is questioned, where there is no clear procedure for how you uh, pass uh, a constitutional law or uh, a constitutional amendment. And there is actually, in practice, um, there is in place exactly the same process for passing legislation and for passing constitutional amendments, which in, in our system are called basic laws or amendment to basic laws. So the question is, in such a system, can parliament, which the court has held 30 years ago, wears two hats. Uh, it is uh, a legislature, but it is also entrusted with uh, gradually building up the Israeli constitution. Is it subject to any limits when it is engaging in the latter uh, practice. And the question has come to the forefront because if in the past the approach by the Israeli Knesset was that uh, they deal very delicately and very cautiously with amendment to basic laws, they basically try to formulate a broad consensus, uh, they study the topic very long, and then they introduce quite um, generally accepted norms. In the last decade, we have seen a shift in that regard, uh, and we have seen maybe uh, a reflection of what is sometimes regarded as hardball constitutionalism. We have seen Knessets uh, willing to resort very, very frequently to constitutional amendments and uh, in a way politicize the constitutional amendment process so that it is essentially decided on the basis of coalition versus opposition. So it has become uh, a very partisan process. And essentially indistinguishable from a normal legislative process. Indistinguishable. So in a way, what the Knesset has identified, uh, once constitutional review of legislation has become commonplace in Israel. Once the, it has become entrenched that the court can strike down legislation if it violates basic rights or if it violates basic norms of constitutional law, the, the way in which the, the parliament reacted to that was basically moving the goalposts to the constitution making. So whenever they were unhappy with a certain line of jurisprudence, they were simply changing the rules of the game. Uh, e effectively changing the constitution on questions like what is the judicial power of review or in another case that was issued last week on uh, what are the conditions for incapacitating the prime minister. And the question that the court held, uh, had to deal with is whether there are any legal limits. And the, the shift, is, I mean, the, divide, the, the fault line was two of the justices said no, we have nothing to hang on to, and as a result, the conclusion is no limits. 
the Knesset can pass any law that it wishes if it calls it a basic law. There are absolutely no limits. So as long as you're dealing, in other words, with the Knesset in its constitution writing function, it's a pure parliamentary supremacy system. It's a pure parliamentary supremacy system. Whereas the other justices, the, the remaining 12 and one who left the matter for future, for further future review, the remaining justices, the 12 plus the one, took the view that no, there must be some limits. And those limits can be either uh, drawn from Israel's declaration of independence or from other basic laws that are already in place or the most common approach that most of the judges came around by what is sometimes called in comparative law the basic structure or the fundamental constellation of the judicial system. There are certain fundamental ideas uh, that um, in a way serve as the ground norm, the ground norm in legal theory terms that underlie the whole legal system, namely that Israel is a Jewish state, that Israel is a democratic state, and that there is certain baggage which is associated with these ideas, separation of powers, uh, judicial review, uh, having periodic elections, the rule of law. All of these uh, key pillars are associated with these uh, basic structure or basic uh, constitutional constellation. And, uh, and on that basis, the court said we can exercise review even of amendments of the basic laws. Okay, so Amichai, take up the next question. So you have a 13 to 2 or uh, 12 to 3, depending on quite how you count, on the foundational constitutional question. The second question is one that is, uh, I guess, sounds really an administrative law, although from an American perspective, it's administrative law with a pretty deep constitutional I don't know if it's an overlay or an underlay, but in, 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 in the Israeli context, this is a sort of pretty pure administrative law question, right? So it started as an administrative law question, the question of reasonableness, right? Can the court strike down decisions of elected officials, of the government and of ministers, because they are extremely unreasonable? This question has taken a much larger scope in, in, in Israeli law in the recent year for, I think, two reasons. First of all, the way it was framed. The amendment was framed in a way in which took away the authority of the court to review certain actions. So, And to be clear here, the amendment that you're describing is the one piece of the giant judicial reform package that actually passed. And uh, you guys wrote a lengthy takeout on it, a description of it for Lawfare back in the early days of the judicial reform disputes and the re resulting protests. Um, and for those who either didn't didn't rem it was not the central component of the judicial reform package, but it was the one that passed. And essentially, for those who are not conversant in Israeli uh, administrative law, in Israeli law, the courts have traditionally had 
a, a, a kind of reasonableness review with very limited standing requirements for somebody to challenge an executive action. And so, you know, the government does X, whether it's the appointment of a minister or the plan to demolish a house, and somebody who may have very little connection to this walks into court and says, this is unreasonable, and the court will entertain that petition in a fashion that is just completely unthinkable in American law, but is routine in Israeli law. And this is the authority that, uh, not the authority to entertain a petition, but the authority to invalidate a government action on the basis that it is unreasonable that the Knesset uh, took away. So sorry, I, I interrupted you, but I no, thought no, that was uh, it's okay. necessary uh, you, background. So you're correct, of course. So the first issue was the way I think it was framed. It was framed that the way taking away the powers of the court. And this, of course, raises all the issues that Yuval alluded to uh, earlier regarding the separation of powers. So this raises the, uh, the flag here, the red flag here, right? So you, the government through the Knesset is trying to gain power which the court has no review over. And this was thought of as extremely dangerous in the Israeli political system. Now, we spoke about it in previous podcasts, but I'll reiterate for a second. The Israeli political system is unique in the sense that there are no political checks and balances. The government controls practically. The Knesset, and there's no internal division of power. We have a unicameral legislative branch. We don't have a federal system. We don't have uh, strong regions, etc. So all political power in Israel is centered in the in the hand of a few political figures, the heads of the parties in the coalition. And the court viewed this attempt to centralize even more power by saying, okay, and now the decisions cannot be reviewed by the court as uh, something that undermines the uh, structure of democracy. So that's the first reason. And the second reason, I think, was, and, and you spoke about it, the importance of the reasonableness ground for review as it was used by the courts to limit some of the powers of the government, for example, in interim governments. So the way the court uh, framed the reasonableness review is that it took, for example, interim governments. So these are governments that act after uh, elections have already been called, right? So elections in Israel are not, you know, in strict terms. It's when they are... uh, There is a limit of four years, but we almost never get to the limit. Usually they're called before that. And the court has said that there are limits on the authority of interim governments, these governments that serve after elections have been called, in order to protect the integrity of the election system. And the court saw here a problem, for example, in if if interim governments would have authority that is unlimited by the court, they could actually affect not only the decisions, but also the elections themselves because of their the, um, uh, the elections. So this is just one example. And there are other 
examples, in specific examples. And perhaps the third thing, although the, the justices push back uh, regarding this, but this is also something you mentioned, and it's that it was part of a package. And the justices have lived in Israel uh, since January uh, 2023, and they know where this is going. And I think they know the theory that there is a, a gradual democratic uh, descent. Uh, so things are going step by step. And indeed, I think the, the fact that, it, that it's a first step also meant that it has to be blocked. Once again, explicitly, I think the justices pushed back against this. They, they wrote that it should be struck down on its own basis, not because it's a part. But it's hard to uh, evade the thought that they knew the entire picture. I think the concern that the justices had with this amendment, which, like you said, is like administrative law issue, uh, which one normally maybe doesn't think about as the as the central pillar of a, of a democracy, although in Israel it is very important. I think they were concerned by three specific aspects of this uh, amendment. Uh, first, it only removed judicial review from elected officials. So in a way, it did create a very problematic system by which, to the extent that a decision would have been taken by a bu- bureaucrat, the government would, uh, the court could review the decision. But if the same decision would have been picked up and being ratified by a politician, then uh, suddenly uh, there was no longer uh, the power of judicial review. So I think there was a strong sense that the government was empowering itself. It was taking care after uh, after its own and not so much uh, concerned in the abstract about judicial review. Second, you mentioned before that Israel has a very broad idea of reasonableness and very, even a very broad uh, idea about standing. But this amendment would also cover uh, cases that would be reviewed by a U.S. court, namely when an individual has been deprived of a license by a decision that was ratified by a minister and this decision is capricious, arbitrary. No, the court would not be able under these conditions, even under those very strict conditions, it would not be able to exercise judicial review. So it was a, a, a very sweeping amendment that really uh, worked across uh, right, left, up, down, the whole administrative system. And thirdly and finally, uh, th- there was an anomaly with this amendment. The amendment didn't really deal with the question of whether the government should act reasonably. According to the amendment, the amendment did nothing to change the obligation of the government ministers to apply the reasonableness doctrine. The only thing it removed was the power of the courts to review this. So in a way, it created uh, a law without a court or a law without a, a, law, a law reviewer. And that the court saw as a very deep problem from a rule of law perspective, that you have a legal standard that is out there to protect the citizenry, but there is no access to court to uh, enforce that legal standard. Right. So uh, this aspect of the decision was much more fiercely contested than the the more foundational one. I think there was a it was essentially an eight to seven uh, vote in a very American style. Right. Where you have, you know, 
when you say a 5-4 Supreme Court decision, everybody knows who the five and everybody who knows who the four are, although I guess now it's a sort of, it's more 6-3 kind of thing. Um, but um, what do you think, I'd be interested in hearing from both of you on this, what does the division on this point say to you about the degree of polarization of Israeli legal culture on the issues of judicial reform? Or is this just an issue that that you know you're going to you're going to see a a group of you know there 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 is an ideological component of this uh, related to how aggressive the court should be in the administrative reasonableness department? Yeah, so so I would say that the it's not a U.S. case of sharp polarization. Uh, I would say that uh, four out of the justices who uh, voted against the striking down of the law, they are what you might refer to as moderates, uh, in the sense that they may be cons- maybe moderate conservatives or maybe uh, centrist liberals, but uh, essentially. Uh, Three out of the four, we are getting to uh, hair splitting more and more, but three out of the four thought that, yes, there is a fundamental problem with the law that has been passed by the Knesset as an amendment to a basic law. It does appear to strike at the heart of a very important democratic institution, which is judicial review of an administrative act. However, the remedy that should be offered is not the striking down of the legislation, but rather a reinterpretation of the legislation in way that significantly minimize the harm that has been uh, afflicted. So essentially removing only one aspect of the reasonableness doctrine, the most intrusive application of that doctrine, but keeping in place all the the more traditional uh, protections that the doctrine has offered. And there was one justice who had a lot of sympathy for the case uh, and was very critical of the of the core of the of the Knesset's move, but said it simply doesn't reach the threshold. I mean, for me, the threshold of uh, of uh, violating a core democratic principle has not been met. But that justice, on other occasions, did find himself in agreement with the more liberal justices. So I wouldn't say that it's a real eight or seven split hardcore between liberals and conservatives. There are eight liberals, four moderates, and then there are these three conservatives, the two that voted uh, against all the way, and the one justice that says maybe in extremely exceptional cases I would go in that direction, but this is not even in the ballpark. Just if I may add, uh, first, I want to say that the judicial overhaul started with questioning the authority of the court to strike down laws in the first place. So the most extreme proponents of the judicial overhaul said the entire system of striking down laws if they contradict basic laws is problematic. Now here, in this case, we have a clear majority, 14, perhaps even 15 justices clearly saying this question is over, right? This discussion is over. The court clearly has the authority to strike down laws that contradict basic laws. And 
I assume that if the uh, Knesset would try to change this, this would be certainly one of the things that would be struck down by the by the court. The second point I want to make is that when you look at the liberal conservative division here, you also have to take into account, as Yuval said, that uh, three or perhaps even four of the justices took a very activist approach towards interpretation in their decision. So they said, we don't have to strike down these specific basic laws, but the only reason is, is that we are willing to interpret what the Knesset did in a very, very, uh, quote-unquote, liberal way, actually putting, uh, this is completely not an originalist way of interpretation, right? So putting into the words of the of the Knesset, things which clearly the Knesset never intended. In other words, save the save the statute by or the base the the amendment by interpreting it uh, very aggressively. Very very aggressively. So, w- where do you place these on the liberal conservative axis? Is of course um, not not clear. And and the th- I think the uh, the third point is that and and this is, goes towards your question, is that we also have to understand the context. Two of the justices who were in the majority actually already retired. They wrote the decision under a statute which allows them to write decisions 90 days after the mandatory retirement age of 70. So, and this is within, so the, I think, Somewhere in the middle of January would be the last date that they could write uh, decisions. And we are still in a crisis in the sense that the Minister of Justice has already said he is not going to move along the process of appointment, of replacement to these uh, justices. So we're actually now in a Supreme Court which lacks two of its uh, members right now, and there are no even attempts to appoint the replacements. Uh, so we're still in the crisis. The crisis is not over, at least from this point of view. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yeah, so let's talk about the politics of this a little bit because this is now I think the longest podcast conversation that has happened on any matter related to the state of Israel since October 7th that has not mentioned the war or the events of October 7th. Um, but it could not have escaped the, the 
attention of the justices that they were issuing this opinion in a period of incredible compound crisis, right? The judicial overhaul crisis layered underneath the war with Hamas. And it seems to me that they could not have been unaware that this opinion issued under these circumstances is uniquely invulnerable to political response. That is, Bibi Netanyahu, whatever his long-term future may or may not be, cannot respond to this by going to the Knesset and saying, we need remedial legislation immediately, among other reasons, because all politics in Israel is on hold. And it's not clear that how long his government will survive once that hold lifts. And so uh, talk to me about the politics of issuing it at this time and how how, I mean, obviously the case was docketed and argued before October 7th. It's not a response to October 7th. You guys wrote a piece in Lawfare at the beginning of September that said, hey, you know, September is a do or die month for the, in court for the judicial overhaul crisis. But I, I, I do think there's, it is not an accident that this, very decisive opinion comes at a time when the prime minister and for that matter, the justice minister, who's been the driving force behind the judicial overhaul, are just like paralyzed in their ability to respond. And so uh, you've all get us started. Is this the court taking advantage of this situation or to slam the door on the judicial overhaul? Or how cynical should I be about this, in other words? <laughs> no, I think what Abichai said is, is uh, you know, sometimes the simple explanation is the, is the right explanation. The justices, two justices had to retire. They include the president of the court, uh, who already wrote uh, the longest decision uh, in, in the case. Uh, so, so basically, uh, it would have been uh, extremely problematic if after hearing the case, after writing the judgment, suddenly uh, the, the, the judgment is being shelved. So uh, January 12 is the date, uh, is the 90-day uh, date after the retirement of the two justices. So the court simply had to uh, publish it away. There were, in terms uh, of politicking, maybe there are two aspects which are interesting. First, we, uh, I think uh, we follow your example in many, in many ways. Uh, there was a leak of the decision. So this uh, mirrors the Dobbs leak, where uh, the decision was leaked uh, about 10 days before it was published. Uh, this has never happened in the history of the Israeli Supreme Court. It had never happened here either. But it was, it was leaked in a, in a manipulative way. It wasn't leaked completely. There were pieces of it that were leaked and clearly directing towards the 8 to 7 split, ignoring the 13 to 2 split on the uh, principled issue. Right. So, so we had the leak and, um, and there was some uh, speculation as to whether who, of course, leaks and what was it designed to attain. Uh, in the end, uh, like Amichai said, the leak already mentioned it. It's, it's an eight to seven decision, and this hasn't changed. Uh, so, so that was one aspect. Second, there were some last-minute attempts in the Knesset to try to again uh, amend the basic law, <laughs> amend the laws that actually allow uh, the judges to basically write decisions uh, within ninety days and to extend 
the period in time by which the justices, retiring justices, would be able to sign the decision. But that came to naught. Of course, the, uh, the one thing which the Knesset could have done and refused to do was to suspend the law that, uh, that led to the petitions, but this they didn't uh, want to do. Uh, so um, I'm not sure that in this case that the, the fact that we are in a war and, and the fact that the public attention and the political attention is, very, uh, is, is in a very different place, I'm not sure that that played in practical terms a huge role in the, in the decision. Uh, I think for the court, in some way, it is fortunate that it uh, it is it is uh, it is like that in the sense that uh, it that it did capture the headlines for maybe one day and then and then it disappeared and it hasn't really uh, picked up so far a lot of momentum. Uh, we should know that there is another decision that was issued. I've mentioned this before: the incapacitation decision. That decision, uh, maybe I'll just say a few words about what that decision is for for our listeners. That decision was also an attempt to strike down uh, a basic law, an amendment to a basic law, which was also passed by this uh, government with a view to uh, minimize external review of its activities. It was a law that uh, made it extremely difficult to remove a serving prime minister on the basis of his incapacitation. Uh, we've had before uh, a general term in, in our basic law on government that allow, that basically uh, provided that the, the prime minister, if he becomes he or she incapacitated, then there is a process by which uh, his or her authorities would be transferred to another minister. But there was never actually clear uh, indication of who declares incapacitation and under what procedure. We only had one case in our history where Ariel Sharon uh, suffered a stroke. And on that, uh, and on that basis, the attorney general uh, convened the government and basically the government decided on, on, on his advice that there would be an incapacitation. And here there was a law that was passed that made it virtually impossible for the, uh, the attorney general to do that. Uh, and the fear basically deciding that the two thirds of the government would have to decide three or four, three fourths or two thirds of the government, and then it have, would have to be ratified by the Knesset. So it became a very difficult, by a supermajority, a very difficult political um, exercise. And, and the context was that Netanyahu was afraid that because of his legal troubles and his conflict of interests, the attorney general would basically. Uh, apply the incapacitation provision to him. And the, uh, the, the amendment to the basic law was designed to shield Netanyahu from uh, being removed uh, from office by the attorney general. Here, the court uh, decided not to strike down the law, but rather opt for the interpretive remedy. And that is to, to read the law as if it would apply not from this Knesset, but from the next Knesset. And in terms of political fallout, this law has a more immediate uh, implication because Netanyahu is still uh, undergoing a criminal trial and um, there are still concerns about his many conflicts of interests. So this avenue, and there, and there is actually a case, a petition against the attorney general for refusing 
to basically uh, incapacitate, incapacitate uh, Netanyahu. So all the all the different uh, courts are actually being pulled together because now the court can review the reasonableness <laughs> more uh, easily of a decision not to incapacitate the president, the, the prime minister. And uh, the the incapacitation law is inapplicable. So this may have have more political urgency for the government. But even that, we haven't seen any momentum to try to deal with this decision. Yeah. So, so Amichai, let me turn to you on this. Accepting that I should be uncynical about the court's behavior and motives uh, here, and that the expiration of the terms of, of the president of the court, Esther Hayut, and and the other justice is a full and complete explanation for the timing here. It still seems to me that the the court has done something that the political system is actually in the current context completely incapable of responding to. And and so my question is, assuming that Yuval is correct and that the court's motives and behavior here is pure as the driven snow, it still seems to me like the they just killed the judicial reform, pro, uh, uh, the entire year of turmoil over the judicial overhaul. They just sort of declared it over. Am, am I overstating that? No. First of all, we have to remember that even before October 7th, the judicial overhaul was not a great success in terms of the achievements, right? The only thing, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the talk, the only thing that passed was the reasonableness uh, amendment. And it seemed that the government was unable to overcome the political and public uh, resistance towards changing. And we remember the uh, demonstrations in the streets. So it wasn't as if it was... Uh, gliding to to success the the uh, judicial overhaul before. Second, I completely agree with, with the observation. I would uh, frame it this way: the only thing that Yariv Levin, after a year, uh, actually succeeded in doing is tre- strengthening the court, because now we have a decision of the court declaring its authority to uh, strike down basic laws, something which was debatable, you know, and uh, actually no one really thought it would come to pass uh, uh, before Yariv Levin started. And Yariv Levin can show uh, absolutely nothing to his voters. The only thing he can show is that he succeeded in doing the opposite, strengthening the court uh, even more. I agree that right now in the current political atmosphere, it doesn't seem as if any part of the judicial overhaul will pass. However, the tensions underlying the issues are still there. They have not gone away. It's not as if suddenly we see in public opinion polls that uh, 80% of Israelis agree with the court, uh, you know, like uh, it was 20 or 25 uh, uh, years ago. It's the tension regarding the authority of the court and the nature of Israeli democracy is still there. And I think there is a lesson there. And some of the justices hint to it. So Justice Chayut, President Chayut, in her opinion, she said, listen, if there was a clearer procedure a stricter procedure for passing basic laws, 
I would have rethought my uh, my assumptions here. So what she actually meant to say, I think, is that if we'll be able to complete the Israeli constitution and put in place a clearer procedure, in Israeli terms, we call it basic law legislation. Okay, so we lack the basic law which defines what is the, is there a special procedure to pass a basic law? And as Yuval said, this is one of the problems of the Israeli constitutional system that basic laws, the constitutional norms are passed exactly as regular laws are. But if we'll be able to adopt in, not perhaps not in this Knesset, but in the next Knesset, a system by which we'll have a stricter requirement for passing basic laws or amending existing basic laws, say 80 members of Knesset, so two-thirds of the Knesset or something like that, then perhaps this would uh, help both the court and the Knesset and the Israeli public uh, come to a larger agreement regarding the um, structure of the Israeli constitution. In other words, what she's really saying there is if you want us as the court to treat the basic law as a constitution, you have to start acting like it's the constitution. You have to start acting like it's not mutable at your whim, but it actually undergirds a system rather than is your latest plaything. As long as you're going to treat it as your latest plaything, we're going to treat it as reviewable. Exactly. They're actually, use, they're actually using this very language that the, the, it cannot be like uh, playing though. I mean, the constitution is not playing though. You cannot just, you know, change every every other week uh, the terms of the constitution. And they cite, of course, the, the number of amendments to the U.S. constitution as a point of reference that this is something that is done. Uh, very infrequently uh, in a very complicated process. Actually, one of the justices uh, in the majority, Justice Groskop, wrote quite explicitly that uh, for him, one of the tests that he would look is the, the size of majority that has supported the amendment in question. Uh, and if the amendment is, uh, is supported on a bipartisan basis by a large majority, uh, that means that it reflects um, a broad understanding about the constitution, that it falls within the constitutional structure of the, of, of, of the state, the basic terms of reference for the Knesset. Uh, but the fact that these have been uh, amendments have been passed on a basically on a coalition driven uh, majority, that was actually an indication that you are not in the business of making a constitution, you're in the business of making day to day politics. So uh, I want to ask you about the day to day politics, um, because you now have just a, I, I just think it's a weird soup of factors that uh, this government could not possibly have imagined at this time last year when it introduced the uh, judicial overhaul package that it was going to face, which is that uh, on the one hand, it is still a government that ranges from the quite right to the extreme right. It's leading a country that has turned out a quite nonpartisan and diverse politically hundreds of thousands of people to pro on a weekly basis to protest these actions 
and has at the same time been on the security front wildly discredited to one degree or another, depending on whom you talk to, by its failure to prevent October 7th and its uh, failure since October 7th to, you know, frankly articulate a vision of what it's trying to do and get a bunch of the hostages, get, get the hostages back. And so I'm interested in your thoughts of how these various components interact in the, like, as you look forward to the next year of, of Israeli judicial policy uh, and politics of the Israeli judiciary, it's obviously not going to play the same role that it did in the last year. But where are we going with this? Well, I think there's a strong sense that this year has been a, a terrible year. Uh, not only because of October 7, but also uh, that the events related to the judicial uh, overall uh, have, uh, in a way, uh, paved the way to October 7, like you said. There is, I think, a strong sense that this, that the, this government was, um, uh, A, working on perhaps items that were luxury items on, on, a, on a government's agenda for a country like Israel, I mean, there are. Uh, this is not the top uh, the top issues that a government should be dealing with. By the way, even the government supporters in polls were. I mean, they they never indicated any serious interest in judicial reform. This was a very this was very low on the. This agenda. was a, a bespoke obsession of a relatively small number of people. Exactly. It was a, an obsession. It is an obsession by a small number of movers and shakers who have long dreamt for 30 years about reversing the 1992-1995 judicial revolution, constitutional revolution, and finally found themselves in a position where they thought that they could do that. So I think one lesson is that a country like Israel cannot afford to invest so much energy in something which is uh, ultimately not key to its survival and to its uh, uh, flourishing. Uh, and the other, uh, I think there was, uh, at least in the, in the short run, we are seeing um, a rejection of the politics of polarization. Uh, and what we are already seeing in the, in, the, in, the, in the opinion polls is the meteoric rise of Benny Gantz, who is a, who is a candidate, a centrist candidate who is basically claimed to fame, is that he is uh, non-controversial and that he is seeking compromise and he is uh, against polarization. And I think there is this association of pushing a judicial reform on a, on a, on a partisan uh, basis with this politics of polarization. Of course, this uh, also ties into the future of Netanyahu because Netanyahu is the politician in Israel, ultimately, who is most associated with the politics of polarization. So uh, the, to the extent that the, this very deep crisis is also going to uh, remove Netanyahu from office, as most commentators predict will happen in in the next few months, that would also mean that the next government would probably not uh, seek to go back into that kind of politics. But Amichai is right that, I mean, in the long run, we may uh, may see this, uh, you know, coming back to haunt us. And if we can learn something from U.S. politics, we can we can see that, you know, what uh, even policies and styles of uh, of leadership that have been rejected by the electorate 
can uh, come back uh, and offer themselves to the electorate and even lead in some polls uh, three years later. Amichai, your thoughts? Regarding the current government, we have to understand that it's actually a unity government, not so much in the uh, representation in the Knesset. The Gantz faction is uh, only has 12 seats in the Knesset, but because Gantz enjoys so much public support, it means that actually the uh, government enjoys relatively wide public, at least at least acceptance of its legitimacy for the duration of the war. Now, of course, the duration of the war now becomes a subject of uh, disagreement because it's clear that it's in the interest of several politicians to drag out the war because it uh, it means that they can stay in power and the discussion regarding whatever happens afterwards is delayed. And uh, so right now there is acceptance, but I think perhaps it, we can see signs of, of where it's going later. And I, I Yuval was optimistic as his way. I'm uh, perhaps a, a bit less optimistic regarding where the... Um, Israeli politics are going, not not in the short term. In the short term, I agree with Yuval. It's clear to me, at least, that in the next elections uh, will be regarding anti-polarization and, and going back to the center. But the divisions are still there, and we have not solved the uh, issues underlying the divisions in Israeli politics. And, of course, uh, we all know that the judicial overhaul, although it was promoted by a small sector, reflected a wider disagreement regarding many issues, regarding the Jewish identity of Israel, the place of tradition in Israel, nationality issues in Israel. So many issues were in disagreement, and these controversies will remain, I think, perhaps not in the very near term, but in the longer term. So I want to close by, you know, it's been almost a year since you guys wrote a six-part takeout on the judicial reform package that I think remains unlike anything else written in English. Uh, So I want to just take a moment to thank you both for the body of work that you've created in English about this set of controversies and it's you know it's legally dense it's politically dense and it's historically dense and it turned out to be just extraordinarily important and uh to thank you both for the body of work that you created in English to bring some of the some of the internal israeli discussion of these issues both at a legal level and at a policy and political level to uh, non-Hebrew-speaking audiences. Um, I think it's a, a genuinely unusual or a genuinely unique body of work and uniquely helpful as people uh, watched the demonstrations, as people watched the litigation uh, that you know, culminated in this decision. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people immediately on October 7th lost sight of this set of issues and probably rightly so, but, you know, at Lawfare, we're not allowed to do that. And so, you know, I just wanted to 
say how much I appreciated uh, that body of work, including the body of the the part of it that was, you know, the occasional podcast like this. And so I just want to refer listeners back if you have any questions about the judicial reform package and the substance of it, the arguments for it, the arguments against it, and the politics around it, uh, the answers are probably in articles written by Amichai and Yuval on Lawfare. And uh, so thank you guys for that year of uh, labor. Thank you, Ben, for hosting us in this podcast, the previous podcast, but also more broadly uh, in Lawfare. I mean, uh, for us, it was uh, a very exciting uh, project to write these blogs, but I think it was also important to, uh, for our cause in Israel, for those who are concerned about uh, the state of Israeli democracy, to communicate these concerns to a professional audience outside the country in ways which are accessible. And, and Lofer was a very valuable uh, bridge in this context between what's happening in Israel and, and the rest of the world. Well, we, we look forward to both of your contributions individually and, and together on these issues as they continue to develop. And although I think uh, those developments will be a ways off, I suspect, but, but also on the myriad other issues that are affecting Israeli democracy and also Israel's ability to uh, wage conflict uh, with Hamas and I suspect ultimately with Hezbollah in fashions that are greatly legally contested. And um, we, we look forward to uh, your continued involvement in lawfare on those subjects. One thing we can say for sure is that there'll be interesting issues <laughs> the overlap of law and security in Israel in the next Indeed. Uh, years. Thank you both. Thank you, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Once again, folks, I engineered this recording myself, so blame any audio glitches only on me. Leave the Goat Rodeo folks out of it. They're not responsible for anything you don't like about the way this episode sounds. You need to do your part to become a material supporter of Lawfare. Hey, you don't like the ads on this? Go become a material supporter and get access to our ad-free podcast. It's a new year. We're going to have incredible coverage of a whole lot of stuff, including whatever fallout there is from the Israeli judicial reform, but we need your help to do it. We need your help to bring you everything that you want from us this year. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always... Thanks for listening.